2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 22 is where we'll be this morning. Um, this morning, my goal is to unpack the tension between how God uses us and why we obey. Uh, I think some of the times we think that we, we want to obey God because we want to be used by God. And, we, and that can be often our skewed motivation for obeying him. Uh, let, let me give you an example. Um, when I was in college, I used to carpool um, with this girl that I had classes with. And I remember we had to carpool because parking was tight where I went to school. And uh, so to save uh, that hassle of trying to get two cars in one place, I would go to her place, meet her, we'd drive, or she would come to mine, and we'd drive. And so what would happen was I had nothing in common with this girl. Um, but she would, her morning ritual was opposite of mine. Mine was, I just like to be quiet, no radio, just drive and silent. Hers was, she wanted to listen to hip hop all the way up, turned all the way up. And this is early, you know, 2000s. So this is like Usher, this is DMX, this is Ludacris. And so on the way to class, you know, y'all gonna make me lose my mind up in here. And I'm just like, oh, and then, you know, just, and, you know, and here I'm in class and I've got, you know, boop, beep, boop, beep going on in my head. I'm just trying to get it out of my head. And, and that was our ritual. And then, and, 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 and she would sing every lyric. It didn't matter how, like, nasty it was. She would sing it. I'm just like, oh, and like, um, and so I remember though, um, that's, that was our ritual, but when it got to time for us to do an exam or a test, she would not listen to that music. It was passion praise. It was early 2000s, you know, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And then she's like, well, it's all about you. She's like that at a stoplight. I'm like, oh my gosh, who is this person? And what was she trying to do? Let's be honest. What was she trying to do? She's trying to get on good, God's good side because it's exam time, right? And we all do that in some way of our life. We try to bargain with God, barter with God, try to say, okay, I want to be used by you, God, in some way, so let me do something good for you so that you know that I love you. And this is very similar to how even when I started out in ministry, I would get opportunities to, to, to preach. I was in my early 20s, and before I would go and preach somewhere, I would like be really focused on my sin that week and make sure like everything was clear and like my prayer life was good and my devotional life was good and like Saturday before Sunday was like the holy day, right? I didn't want to sin at all that day, right? I, that was my focus, like, like as if, if I did that, then I would preach a better sermon or something. And that is what we do with God. We often try to equate obedience to our effectiveness or God using us. So here, the tension, here's the tension, and I want to say right out of the gate, before we even get into the text, that our obedience is not the main reason why God chooses whether or not to use us for his kingdom. In fact, God is going to use us no matter what, all right, because he's God. And so, but that's not the motivation why we obey. We, we obey for a different reason. Now, I want to get into that in, in a moment. But let me just say this, like every one of you, even if, if you're a believer or you're not a believer, one of the things that you're going to see in scripture is that all of us will at some point bow 
And we will call on the name of the Lord. That doesn't mean that all of you are going to be saved. It just means that you are going to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul says it this way in in Philippians chapter 2 verse 9. He says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those who are in hell will recognize that Christ is Lord. Everyone will recognize Jesus Christ is Lord. So here's, here's what I don't want us to miss, though, okay? So whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not, you will bow down. But he's going to get the glory no matter what. But I don't want us to miss this. There are benefits on being on this side of bowing down. You know what I'm saying? Like there are benefits of being a believer in Christ and bowing down before him because we genuinely love him. Okay? And that's what we're going to see in this text this morning. Two things. God is going to get the glory no matter what. And second, it's a joy to obey him and submit our lives to him. And that's what we're going to see in 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. So let me bring you up to speed of what we've seen so far. Paul is telling a younger pastor named Timothy, who's pastoring this church in Ephesus, how to, in chapter 2, how to rightly handle the word of God. He tells him in chapter 2 not to be like the false teachers who waste their time in vain discussions. And then in verse 19 of chapter 2, Paul reminds Timothy that there are going to be some who do that and some who don't. Some who follow and rightly handle the word and walk in obedience to it and some who don't. And we'll know the ones who don't because they'll live in a pattern of sin. And then what he's going to do, and he's telling Timothy this as he's pastoring this church, Timothy, don't be discouraged. Even though there's going to be non-believers in the church, we shouldn't be discouraged by that. In fact, it's just going to display the, the power of the gospel. But this is what he unpacks in verse 20. He says this, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for, what's the word? Dishonorable use. So he's, he's talking about this, the church as, given this analogy as the church is like a building. And in this building, there are vessels. We would say There are containers, and it's kind of like uh, describing your home. In your home, each of you have containers, and in some containers, there are things that hold, some containers hold things that are very useful, some containers hold things that are not useful, and that's what he's, that's the analogy he's going. So if you have a container that is useful, that's kind of like a safe to protect your jewelry, or if you're in the South, your gun, Right? Um, if you have, if you're a, a lady here and you like to save just random things, um, you have a hope chest um, to save and preserve what you have, and that is a container of honorable use. You want to use it for a good purpose, to hold something that is valuable and precious. And then he says, and there's containers of dishonorable use. So that would be. Like your trash can, an ashtray, um, if you are a parent, a diaper genie, 
Those things are nasty. I don't know why anyone wants those in their house. Just turn the little thing and the diaper goes down, but you have to open it at some point. It's going to happen. And, and so <laughs> these are storing garbage. That's what he's saying. And so he's saying, he's comparing this analogy of containers to the church. He's saying in the church, there are people who have their believers. They have, they're used, they, they have in, in them something that is used for his glory. And then he goes to the other point and goes, okay, there are some who store garbage, dishonorable use. And so here's what he's basically saying. The church is full of people, but there are some people who think they're Christians, but they are not. They're not believers. And, he's, and that should not ultimately discourage us. Hopefully, we want everyone to repent and believe the gospel, but Paul is just going to say it. it. This is what you're going to see in, even in the church. The church is going to have non-believers in it. And I think here in the South, like, this is what you see all around. Uh, and I think we get discouraged sometimes as, when we hear these national statistics about Christians of America. Like when we say, like, the divorce rate's the same for Christians as it is for non-Christians. Or, you know, debt is the same for Christians as it is non-Christians. Or um, substance abuse is the same as Christians or non-Christians. But let me just even push back on that because I think, you know, 75% of America claims to be Christian. Okay, can we just say that's probably not true? I mean, can we just say, maybe agree that perhaps the statistics are because it's not that the church uh, is uh, acting like the world as much as it is the world is so much of the world is actually in the church. You have a lot of non-believers in the church, a lot of people who think they're believers, but in fact, they are not. And I'm not saying Christians don't sin or make mistakes, or, but I do know this, that when Jesus changes your heart, you'll never be the same. And I also know that Jesus said that this was going to happen. And I also see that the writers of the New Testament said that unbelievers are going to be in the church. And so I tell you that this morning because I don't want us to think for a second that in both 9 and 11 o'clock services that all of us in this room, even this morning, are believers. This is why Paul says it so clearly in 2 Corinthians. He says, he tells a group of believers to test themselves to see if they are actually in the faith. And so Paul knew that the church had non-believers in it. So here he calls them, he says, it, he calls it dishonorable use. Now, notice what he says. He doesn't say unusable. He says dishonorable use. Interestingly enough, Paul uses this phrase two times. The, the other time he uses it is actually in Romans 9. And in Romans 9, this is what Paul is talking about. This is the other time he uses it. So he uses it here in 2 Timothy 2, and he uses it in Romans 9. In Romans 9, when Paul uses this phrase, dishonorable use, he's talking about uh, Israel's history. He's saying, uh, how about all the Israelites who lived their life and lived in rebellion against God, and there was a remnant of those who believed, um, but, but as a whole, they rebelled. So what do we do with that? Why did they exist? He's going to then explain it. In Romans 9, verse 20, he says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does the molder say? What does the molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God? desiring to show his wrath. Now, I want you to see this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, 
has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known his, the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews also only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, I want you to see what he just said. Okay, first of all, dishonorable use exists. We see it in scripture, it's there. He's saying, what, are, what do we do with all the non-believers that happened before? Does God have a purpose for them? The answer is yes. And he tells you why. He says, to make known in his power and the riches of his glory. So in under, to understand you know, the, the two different chasms that you have. And understand good, we've got to see some bad. And that's how we see what is good and the, and the grace that's been given us. We see the wrath of God poured out on those who don't believe. And that helps believers see, man, I have been saved from so much. Like I've been given so much that I don't deserve. And so here's what he's saying. So we can believe in him or not, but he's still going to display his glory and his power. So how... Does God get the glory for the one who doesn't believe even outside of us seeing his wrath displayed and then us seeing his mercy displayed to us? Well, first of all, we've got to see the context of 2 Timothy 2 and Romans 9. Both places he's talking about how God is going to get the glory even in the face of unbelief. And even in Romans 9, he's talking about the unbelief of Israel and how God's going to get the glory for, for, in spite of their stick-necked disobedience toward him. But how does this work? Well, if you're like me, you came from a dysfunctional family, all right? Somebody raised their hand. Ah, me. Um, if you like me, you came from a dysfunctional family. And you think about, okay, I am one of many siblings, and um, some, some of my siblings are not believers. So why is it, okay, how am I a believer? And then you go back to what happens with my grandfather and my grandfather before and all these people in my life who had Tugwell men have had a history of alcohol addiction and being workaholics. So what is God's purpose in that? Like, how does God get the glory in that? I can, I can give you one reason why God gets the glory in that. One, and this is out of thousands of reasons why how God gets the glory in that, is I happen to be born. And I'm not saying that boastfully, but here's, here's what I mean. In order for me to be a Christian, I have to be born, right? So how am I going to be born? Well, God has to raise up other people to make me born, okay? I mean, I don't even have to explain to you how that works, but it works, okay? And, and so before, like generations of Tugwell men, history after history, from what I've seen, are not believers until my dad later became a believer in life. And so I, I go back over and over again, how, okay, so all of those men existed out of millions of reasons that I could tell you how God gets the glory. One of them, at least one of them is Ben happened to be born so that Ben would be born again and meet Jesus. You, you guys tracking with that? So that, like that, that's out of a big scope of how God's redemptive plan works. How does he get the glory for 
unbelief. How does he, this why he calls it dishonorable use. He still uses it for his glory, even though there is unbelief that exists. And so God is going to do what he wants. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy here in the text. He wants Timothy to trust God, even though he knows that the church at times is to be polluted. And he's telling him, and this is not an excuse then for us to do whatever we want. Because I don't want you to hear this and go, okay, God's going to get the plan. He's going to get the glory for me no matter what. So I'm just going to do whatever I want. No, actually, you're not. I mean, Paul says it this way in Romans 6, 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin while grace abounds? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And if we're believers in Christ, we're genuinely believers in Christ, our desire will be to live in obedience before him. Therefore, the goal of obedience isn't so that we would be put to good use. Rather, he's going to show us what it is next. Verse uh, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Notice what he says, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. Then he says, ready for every good work. So Paul is telling Timothy what it looks like to have a church of people who are walking in repentance. Earlier this year, our church, we went through the book of 1 John and First John chapter one, we see it. He says, if we confess our sins, he, Christ, is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul to Timothy is saying the same thing. He wants Timothy to challenge the people at Ephesus to cleanse themselves for what is dishonorable. Then they will be put for honorable use. For what does it mean to be used for honorable use? He says it. Verse 21 set apart as holy. I want you to see that. So the goal of obedience isn't so that we would be used by God, but rather the goal of obedience is holiness. It's for us to be like him. And to be like him, it leads to something. That's what he's going to say next. You'll be ready for every good work. So the goal of obedience is not so that I would be used by him and preach a good sermon next week and be effective in ministry, although that's a byproduct of it. However, what it means then for me to obey is just for me to want and desire to be like him. And from wanting and desire to be like him, I will be ready for every good work. So when we walk in repentance because we want to be like him, what it does is it stirs our affections to serve him more. You know what that's called? Love. It's called love. Love is when our motivation to serve him is rooted in holiness, which is our desire to be like him. Rather than the idea of, I want to get something from God today, so I'm going to obey him. Or I hope he doesn't take this away from me today, so I'm going to obey him, which is sadly where most people are when it comes to their relationship with God. And this is why, I'll be honest, like, I hate legalism. Hate it with a passion. 
Because what it does is it robs you from the real joy that you have in Christ. Because legalism takes this idea of, let me put these extra biblical ideas on people's shoulders to make them have the appearance of obedience. When in the end, it leads to, uh, it looks like obedience, but it's cloaked in, with religious pride. And let me give you an example. Like I did the whole youth pastor thing for a season. Um, I was a horrible youth pastor, okay? Um, I don't like dyeing my hair green, okay? I don't like playing games with marshmallows in my mouth. I don't like taking kids to um, King's Dominion every year. Um, and so here's what I really struggle with. And I'm not saying, like, there's not, I'm not saying every youth pastor has to do those things. That I just couldn't stand it, okay? And so here's what I really struggle with. <laughs> here's what I really, really struggle with. Every year around Valentine's Day, what do we have to talk about? Sex, right? How do we talk about it? Well, we don't want teenagers to have sex before marriage, so we need to challenge them not to have sex before marriage. So what do we do? We're going to scare the mess out of them so they don't ever want to have sex, ever. And so what do we do? We start with, let's give them a lot of statistics on unplanned pregnancies and how their lives end up, right? Let's, let's tell them how unreliable condoms are. That'll work. Let's, let's tell them all of the STDs they could potentially get if they have sex before they get married. And, or if that doesn't work, we'll show them pictures of STDs and to make sure they really get this, right? And, or you hear the thing of, if you have sex before you get married, you're going to be damaged goods. You'll be no good for somebody else. And that's not the gospel at all. That's not even motivating someone out of a genuine love for God. It's just motivating them out of guilt and, and scare tactics. Obviously, we believe here at Integrity that a husband and wife in the confines of marriage should become one and they should enjoy each other. And so that we would teach that, but, but the, the motivation, the scare tactic is what I want to focus on because this is where I think we get lost in legalism. I mean, you do the same thing with how we teach money. I hear ch churches all the time try to motivate people not to give out of a genuine love for God or holiness for God or desire for holiness for God, but it's out of guilt or what they will receive back. How many times do you hear the sermon of, if you sow a seed... You get back tenfold, right? So what's the motivation for you to give? To get rich. I want to make more money, so I better give to God. Oh, you better, if you're struggling with debt, you know why you're struggling with debt? Because you're not giving that 10%. If you get that 10%, you won't have debt anymore. So what's the motivation? No debt. So it's still about you. It's not about a genuine love for him. If you, if you give this percent, your barns will be plentiful, Right? If, if, or you see the churches that do the tithe challenges. Let me tell you, if you tithe and if you're not blessed at the end, we'll give you your money back. That's insane. Like that's motivating people just out of what you get out of it. And that's not even Christianity because it's all motivated out of gift. It's just legalistic garbage and it doesn't produce anything that relates to holiness or a genuine love for God. It just produces fear, guilt, and even worse, religious pride. Why does God want our purity? Because we love him and we want to be like him and we want to be set apart. That's the motivation why we want to be pure. 
It's not scare tactic. It's not how many STDs we could get. You know, it has nothing to do with that. It's all about we love him. Now, some of those are the side effect of disobedience, but the motivation is a genuine love for him. Why do we give? Well, we give because we want to emulate Christ. What did Christ do? He gave us everything. And to be holy means to be set apart and to be like him, which means we want to live our lives. We want to give everything. And it's motivated out of our love and our desire to be like him. So it's different. It's different. So why do we stop sinning? Is it to give something out of him? No, it's to be like him. It's to be holy. And holiness always stirs a greater affection for him. And that's what it truly means to love God. Listen, every parent in this room has a story about their kids who do something for them because their kids genuinely love them. And on the flip side of that, every parent in this room has a story about their kids who do something for them because their kids are trying to get something out of them. Every single one of us. But I mean, but what would we rather have as parents? Do we want our kids to do something for us because they're trying to get something out of us? Or do we want our kids to do something for us because they really love us? It's out of genuine love, is it not? I mean, I can think back to some of the sweetest times with my oldest son, Finn. Um, he's at that age now where he's starting to sleep in a little bit, like sleep like 10 o'clock, you know. But back in the day when he was just like, just like three or four years old, he would wake me up in the morning because he was like the first person to get up. And uh, in those days, he was like a morning person. He's the sweetest little guy. And um, I, I don't drink coffee, okay? Um, and that's rare for church planters. I drink a Coke in the morning. I drink one. And that's a caffeine for the day. And it's funny. I talk to coffee drinkers, and like I'll, they'll say, you drink a Coke in the morning? That is so bad for you. <laughs> and I'm like, how many cups of coffee do you have? Eight. Oh, health nut over here. Give me advice. <laughs> and um. And so that was me. Like, I, I drink a Coke every morning. And I, I know my son, Finn, when, I, when he was about four years old, he knew that about me. And he also knew dad needs to eat better. And so what he would do is he would bring me every morning. I'd wake up. Uh, my eyes are still blurry. I'd wake up. He's right there staring at the edge of my bed. <laughs> and he'd raise his hand. And he'd have a Coke in one hand and a granola bar in the other. And he'd kiss me and say, I love you, Daddy. And like, I didn't have to prompt that. Like, he just did that out of the love in the gym. Where is he doing that now? I need to talk to him about that. Um, and, and so it was just out of a genuine love for his dad that he would want and desire to do that. But what if I said, Finn, if you don't get up and get me a Coke in the morning, I'm going to take everything from you. And I'm, you, I'm gonna, you're, you're not going to play video games for a month and blah, 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 blah. And that was like... But would I, would I receive that love in the same way? No, it wouldn't be love. It'd be fear. It'd be guilt. It would be something else. It would be motivated for his sake, but not out of a genuine love for him. And so when God, when he, he wants us, our motivation for us, it should be for out of love and holiness and our desire to be like him. That is why you and I should obey because we want to be like him because he's holy. Now, it's important that we grasp what we see next as we think through what it means to walk in this way. Verse 22, he says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace 
along with those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. Now, what are youthful passions? Well, most of the time we see this in scripture, we think it's sexual sin and lust. And often that is what it means. However, here in the context is really about how a believer fights against worldliness. So when Paul talks about worldly uh, youthful passions, he's talking about the way that you and I used to be before we became believers in Christ. And you even see this, like when Peter, when he talks to the persecuted church in Asia in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says it in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he called you is holy, but he who has called you is holy, also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So he's saying what holiness is, is, is trying to fight against how you used to be. And when we see that, we immediately think, well, I've got to be good. I've got to start. And we start to get on the um, hamster wheel of legalism. Like, how do I, how do I not, how do I fight that? Well, I'm going to get all these, these parameters in place, all this accountability in place. But holiness and repentance isn't just about being good. Real repentance is about changing our heart and our mind. And there's this two-sided coin to this that we're going to see, that we see in verse 22. It's not just about stopping the sin. It's actually about pursuing righteousness as well. And I want you to see the two sides of this coin because often the latter gets lost. We think repentance is just about stopping sin, but we we lose the part what's also about pursuing righteousness. And that's why he says in in the second part of verse 22, he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord with a pure heart. Now, I'll I'll unpack each of those next week when we get into the text, but I, I want you to see this. Cleansing can never be a matter of just avoiding the bad things. It must also be a pursuit of good things, of godly things. Therefore, there are both things we must flee from and things that we must pursue. And if you're not fleeing, that means you're not pursuing. And if you're not pursuing, that means you're not fleeing. And so it goes both ways. And I don't want us to miss that. And that that is why I am leery of anyone who says they're repentant, but they're not walking through legitimate steps of holiness. Let me give you some examples. I meet with a lot of young men who struggle with pornography. And often what repentance looks like when they explain they're working through it is, I've downloaded software, I'm good. Okay, let's now talk about steps to walk through what that looks like. Who else is in your life asking you questions? Who is, what community do you have around you? Are you in the word? Are you, how, how far has it gotten in your life? And you walk through, okay, what does, what does it look like to be discipled or possibly counseled through this as you grow to heal when you love your God more than you love your sin? That, those steps are what he's saying we often is a requirement of repentance. It's not just saying, I struggle with this, I'm going to stop doing it. It's walking toward righteousness. Debt. Well, I made a budget online. Everything's good. Well, let's now talk about your heart and your motivation to 
want something that you can't afford. Let's talk about the motivation in your heart of why you think you need that one thing. Let's, uh, let's walk through the repentance of what that looks like to, for the Lord to heal you and crush your idols so that you would trust him and love him above all things. But the, what we think repentance is, is I made a budget online, so I'm good. No, it's, it's walking toward steps of repentance because you're pursuing righteousness. I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, marry people all the time. It's like, I mean, we were on the brink of divorce, but we went for a walk the other night after a date night and everything's fine and we're good. Like, no, you're not. You're not good. Like, it, this takes time. You don't, you don't go from I hate you and never want to see you again to now everything's fine just like that. That's not repentance. Repentance is the first step of repentance is confessing it and recognizing the sin in your life, but it's also walking through the pattern of righteousness. You're pursuing righteousness. You're pursuing faith. You're pursuing love. You're pursuing peace. This is the posture of your heart. I mean, think about it. If I got up here this morning and I said, guys, I am really working on losing weight. And that's it. Let's pray. And I get down and you say, how's that going? Great. I ate a salad two weeks ago. What have you done since then? Nothing. Are you going to take me seriously or not? No. You're going to say, I don't think you're going to lose weight. Because you would then ask me, well, maybe you need to eat a salad every day. Maybe twice a day. Maybe you need to work out. Maybe you need to run, do some cardio. Work on that. Like that's, that's a step toward losing weight. So you wouldn't take me seriously. But, but that, we do the same thing with like repentance. We just think, oh, it's just saying what it is. And saying, I'm working, I've stopped it. But we're not, but, but you haven't stopped it if you haven't moved toward steps of righteousness. Move toward steps of love, a genuine love for Christ. So true repentance isn't just confessing sin and trying to stop the sin, but it's rather, it always leads itself to avenues of holy living. And, he, and this is nothing new to Paul. He says it in 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. He says, but as for you, O man, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So true repentance is what Paul's saying, is it always leads to a greater affection of him. And it isn't that you're trying to win over the favor of God because Jesus did that when he came and he lived a perfect sinless life and he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the grave. He doesn't need to, you don't need to win his favor. Jesus died in your place. And God doesn't need your repentance to get things done because he can get it done with or without you and me. But here's the thing. We get the opportunity and the grace and the faith to repent to God because it shows us how to be like him. And from there, we learn to love. And so this morning, where do you need to honestly repent before God this morning? Where do you need to repent and you need to make steps of healing and righteousness in your life? Where do you need to get serious about taking those steps in your life? What do those steps look like for you? What is your motivation this morning to obey? Is it out of fear? Is it guilt? Or, is it, or do you really desire to be like your God? 
And if Integrity Church, if we want to be a healthy church, man, we've got to have people that we desire to just be like him. And the overflow of joy and love that we have for this church and this city and throughout the world, it needs to be starting point of we want to be like God. We want to be holy as he is holy and we want to love him. And from that, we want to love others. And so for us, it's going to take that heart of walking in true repentance. And so I wrote down this prayer that I thought would be helpful for my own soul and just for our church. And it's simple. It says, I wrote down, Father, make me like you. For you are holy. For you are love. And maybe that would be our prayer this morning. What does it mean for you to truly walk in repentance and desire to be like him. God help us. Let's pray.